Hello everybody. I'm Akanksh. Hi everyone. I'm Anshi. And this is the Mind Theory podcast. So today we are demystifying dreams. Manasi, what's been your uh, experience with dreams? Are you an active dreamer? I am an extremely active dreamer and I have a good memory about my dreams going back to my kindergarten. So this is going to be fun. Wow, to your kindergarten. Do you like wh- wh- how how often do you dream in like say a week? I think daily. I do dream daily, I think. I have recalling every morning. I hope and I wish I could be better at journaling my dreams but yeah that's been a fail. Yeah, that's the same case with me actually. I do recall a lot of my dreams uh, and that's primarily because they are really bizarre. I have really bizarre dreams for some reason. And oh, yeah. And I ha- I have tried journaling as well but I haven't been very consistent. I I, I was really fascinated with dreaming after that uh, movie came out Inception. Have you seen it? Oh actually I haven't seen Inception but I do know that every active dreamer should watch it yeah. I think I should watch it soon <laughs> Yeah Yeah it's it's a pretty great movie it got me into like I I tried a lot to lucid dream which we will talk about later Oh yeah I am pretty good at lucid dreaming to be honest Wow really so, Yeah yeah Actually it is like a study found that it's a learnable skill so that's it is and i'd like the uh, listeners to know more about how to lucid dream cuz that's going to come up soon yeah you can probably give us tips on how to lucid dream yay anyway the history of dreaming has been uh, quite rich actually there is a lot of uh, recorded evidence of dreams and uh, how dream interpretation happened the oldest mm-hmm. evidence of dream interpretation came from uh, mesopotamia and egypt so uh, yeah they used to write down their dreams on papyrus and then usually consult a wise man or a physician and who would subsequently recommend this process called incubation where they would basically sleep in a sacred chamber and their uh, they would dream again and that second dream was supposed to explain their first dream which is kind of bizarre it's like a mini experiment yeah exactly and these dreams are kind of like supposedly connected so there were two kinds of kinds of dreams right one was the literal message dreams where basically a god or a goddess came into your dream and sort of gave a clear message uh, like there was this uh, uh, last king of babylon his name was uh, nabonidus i think that's how you say it uh okay. so he had a dream where the moon god appeared and asked him to construct a temple which he did subsequently and it's kind oh. of a, kind of ironic cuz he was the last king of babylon ah uh, so <laughs> yeah symbolic dreams also were there uh, uh, the second sort of dreams and these dreams were usually interpreted by uh, priests and they were trained and they kept a log of uh everyone's special dreams and made a list of all the omens and uh, dreams of like the kings and stuff it's pretty cool yeah i think that practice still continues today of everyone trying to make sense of one single element like if someone sees a ferris wheel then all ferris wheel dreams are supposed to mean certain thing and that's still a fun practice today but still it's untested but it's crazy how back even how long ago people used to think that dreams and little elements in dreams have a meaning 
Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, yeah, it makes sense given that, you know, the cultural context at that time also was very, uh, the belief in the supernatural was quite prominent and therefore uh, something bizarre like a dream captivated everyone's uh, everyone's interest. True, true. And even today, it's not very well explained because it's still a part of your uh, unconscious and it's bridging to the conscious. So that has always been very interesting to pinpoint on. But it's also fun how uh, vague it is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the element of uncertainty is surely present. So during, yeah. uh, like after this ancient sort of era, uh, uh, Hippocrates, you know, was one of the first to view dreams as a sort of a diagnostic tool. So he wrote this uh, book called On Dreams, and he stated that the mind and body are interdependent. So he also used the symbolic interpretation of the dream, um, very much like psychoanalysis. So you you know that Hippocrates came up with the humoral therapy, right? Like the humoral theory of uh, yeah, disease. Yeah. So there were like five humors, supposedly, phlegm, black bile, yellow bile, uh, blood. So... Uh, for him, he believed that if you dreamt about something like rains, right? So the rain was a symbol of uh, phlegm. Mm-hmm. So there was a problem in your uh, phlegm humor. So so you see the implication okay. here is that your psychological faculties, your dreams basically tell you, signal a physiological problem. So he was making that connection way back in the day. He also believed that prayer yeah. improves mood and hence uh, improves uh, your dreams. Uh, again, making that connection between the psychological and the physiological. And that actually is there even today because uh, people with anxiety tend to have more vivid dreams and more, uh, uh, they can recall their dreams much more because of their physical state in the waking stage where they are sort Mm -hmm. of repressing a lot of elements. So like, even though he made a physical and psychological connect back then, even now there can be like, there's actual proof that we can figure out someone's mental disorder just by looking at the yeah. sleep patterns and dream patterns. That, that, that is that is really interesting, uh, you okay. know, that connections like this were made uh, primarily on intuition, you know, there was no empirical evidence to prove it. And we are just now starting to discover some yeah, but... s- sort of empirical evidence on these on these theories. Then there was also Plato. So Plato came up with his own theory of uh, dreams, which is very similar to psychoanalysis. Uh, he, he said that there are two kinds of dreams, basically. One is the lawless and the lawful. And he believed that the rational part of the brain basically is subdued when a person is asleep. And, the, and if a person is inebriated or drunk, the beastly savage part is uh, you know aroused uh, during, during the sleep. And that's why... If you drink and go to sleep, your dreams are going to be full of uh, primeval, pr- uh, primitive desires. And he said that if you went to sleep sober, oh. you could have rational dreams. And uh, these dreams could tell you a lot about uh, yourself, you know. So this is like hinting at the uh, struggle between uh, the id and the superego and kind of resonates with the school, uh, psychoanalytic understanding of dreams as well. That is true, that is true. Yeah. And then finally, uh, you know, 
the Greek philosopher Aristotle. He also uh, he was uh, more of a rationalist uh, coming from an empirical sort of s- school of thought. So he looked at the cognitive aspects of dreaming, which is uh, he's probably the first person to do so. So he believed that dreams are like after images and it's kind of like a secondary sensory process. Uh, which happens all the time, but we become aware of it while sleeping because our actual sense perceptions are resting. So kind of like, oh. how, yeah, kind of like how you, if you look at something bright and then you look away, there's like an after image. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So this is quite an interesting sort of a understanding of dreams. Although, again, it's really difficult to like study this kind of a, a process because... Yeah, when it's not falsifiable, then it remains a theory. True, that's true. Then, I mean, in the uh, 1900s, late 1800s, Freud was the poster boy of dreams. Uh, his mm-hmm. uh, study of symbolic interpretation was like prominent. He he looked at uh, uh, like these recurring symbols, which he related to uh, uh, the person, birth, concepts of like death sex and you know parents and family that sort of thing again like the usual psychoanalytic stuff yeah i think i remember reading parts of uh, interpretation of dreams his book mm-hmm. when i was pretty young and that's sort of also why i became interested to like study psychology in the future because i was like oh this is Pretty interesting, and yeah, that was my first uh, introduction to Freud himself. Oh, that that's int- you. You were introduced through interpretation of dreams. That's nice. Yes. yes. That's quite a difficult book to digest, to be honest. Yeah, I I don't know. I skipped a lot of parts, but there was this one part where uh, he spoke about how dreams are um, wishful thinking. So it keeps you in positions where you either are afraid to ever be in. So your dream becomes a simulation of hmm. you preparing you for that situation. Or it's something that you always wanted to experience but are not having a waking experience of mm-hmm. it. And as an active dreamer myself, I have experienced those dreams. And when I, I saw Freud talking about it, I was like, oh, this has been studied and this has a name. Right. So that was interesting. I mean, yeah, I guess that's true, right? Like you reflect on these uh, aspects, psychological aspects, and then you realize, oh, there's already a theory on this. Yeah, and you somehow feel sane. I guess. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, you know what? I don't, I found his uh, theory on dreams to be kind of uh, really convoluted and uh, kind of almost like projection. He, He kind of projected his own life onto you know his theories so that is true i won't disagree with that and that was freud in most of his theories yeah where it was very criticized later on and now we have new freudian so he he basically like uh, had these uh, symbols right like water was associated with birth and uh, any sort of a phallic shape in your dreams like even an airplane was supposedly yeah represented genitalia so yeah, yeah. the obsession with the uh, uh, sexual uh, aspects is, uh, I feel like, uh, partly a projection of Freud's own uh, uh, personality and thoughts onto his theories. Yeah, 
that is true i mean and this is not the only theory of freud which had like unnecessary uh involvement of sexual themes mm-hmm. but yeah that is true but then there were some things in the interpretation of dreams that made sense yeah like uh, the, he had this uh, famous case uh, called dora so dora came into freud's office and you know she showed symptoms of what he called hysteria and uh, he claimed that her and and dora claimed that her family friend mr k made sexual advances towards her so freud began by uh, studying her dreams so she had a dream in which her house was on fire and her father woke her up and her mother was screaming in the back saying that you have to save the jewel case and her father replied saying i won't let my family burn for the sake of a jewel case so the way he under, uh, the way freud interpreted this dream was he saw the jewel case as a symbol of uh, the uh, dora's virginity that her father failed to protect so uh, this seems to me kind of convoluted like you know mm-hmm, it's yeah. imposing a narrative onto a dream which is which con- comes from preconceived notions yeah it's yeah it it is basically an in, uh, interpretation without any back uh, evidence yeah so uh, yeah and that was i think of uh, uh, even in other case studies of freud he had a lot of uh, sexual interpretation as to why someone was going through something yeah that's true well funnily enough even during this time dreams are not given like serious academic attention uh, d- uh, dreams are only scientifically studied uh, in the as a, like during the 50s so i think the first study that uh, tried to find the uh, physiological source of dreaming was a study conducted by Eugene Eugene Azarinsky and Nathaniel Kleitman in 1953 so they used uh, this technique called uh, electroculography which measures your corneoretinal potential so a corneoretinal potential is basically uh, the potential difference between the front and back of your eye okay so, okay so they placed electrodes uh, above and below the eye and uh, a change in the potential difference uh, was measured as a wave which indicated uh, uh, eye movement and they found that uh, there there were stages uh, during sleep where an individual's eyes moved rapidly and hence they called it rapid eye movement rem for short yeah so uh, they they conducted an experiment where they woke individuals uh, who were going through this rem process and asked them to recall what they were dreaming and found that these individuals were able to very clearly recall their dreams and they also woke individuals who were not having this uh, eye movement they were not in the rem stage which is called non rem nrem and they found that out of the 23 in- such individuals who were woke uh, uh, awoken 19 showed a uh, complete failure to recall and uh, subsequently they studied how long and for how many times this uh, rem happens and they found that it's usually one to four times Oh okay yeah the very uh, this was at, at the beginning of sleep patterns also i guess yeah the study of sleep patterns yeah yeah so they uh, this the study of uh, uh, sleep and dreams uh, in terms of stages kind of began during the 50s there were a lot of other studies that were revolving around these ideas 
So this, however, the 1953 study by Kleitman and Asolinsky was probably the first one to look at it, uh, look at the physiological aspects of, of dreaming. There were a lot of studies also around this time that uh, claimed that the physiological state determines the contents of the dream as well. So this was called the two generator model. Mm-hmm. However, later uh, uh, studies showed that uh, REM sleep uh, is not the only time where dreams happen, actually. And NREM, non-REM time, uh, is also a time where an individual dreams. Okay. Has it anything to do with recalling then? Like does, um, like dreaming during REM, does that increase recalling? Because I've heard studies that everyone dreams, but not everyone recalls their dreams. Yeah, that's true. Actually, uh, they found that uh, individuals who uh, had a REM sleep were uh, able to recall their dreams for longer. Whereas uh, people who dreamt in the REM part, uh, sorry, the NREM part had uh, difficulty recalling the dreams uh, over a period of time. They could recall it immediately, but not uh, like, say, a few hours later. However, that's not the case with REM. One one sort okay. of uh, theory for this is that, you know, that REM sleep uh, is the time where all these bizarre dreams happen. So researchers found an increase in the activity in the thalamic nuclei. So the thalamus is a part of the brain, which has a lot of nuclei, uh, which is basically a collection of uh, gray matter and, and, and neurons. And the, that's why the thalamus is called the relay station. Mm-hmm. They found an increased activity here for REM, as well as a, a decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex, as you know, is like the rational, rational part of... Yeah. yeah. So they found that uh, uh, as hypothesized, hypothesized, I think that's the word, the REM uh, stage is when uh, the prefrontal cortex is inhibited. And that's why we have such bizarre dreams. Yeah. However... In the case of uh, NREM stage, when uh, dreams occur, uh, they found that uh, PFC, uh, the prefrontal cortex deactivation is not as predominant. So that's why they say that the rational sort of dreams that you have, are uh, they usually probably occur during the uh, non-REM st- uh, stages of sleep. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, interestingly enough, uh, going deeper into this, uh, a researcher called Nielsen in 2000, this is a landmark study and has been cited multiple times. Uh, Nielsen proposed a different theory in understanding uh, sleep. He claimed that, understanding dreams, sorry. He claimed that uh, REM processes, uh, the physiological processes associated with the, the REM stage are present throughout the sleep and not just limited to REM. So, so even during the NREM stage, you dream and uh, the REM processes, the physiological aspects of it, the thalamic nuclei activity, etc. are present. So uh, he, in his study, he found that when participants were aroused in the first stage of sleep, which is not REM, uh, they re- did report some sensory hallucinations and dreamlike bizarreness, so indicating that they did have dreams in the NREM stage as well. So to take this study further, uh, Suzuki and colleagues conducted a study that uh, in which they gave participants short naps of 20 minutes every hour for 78 hours. And upon waking up every 20 minutes, the participants reported dream-like sort of bizarreness, 
there there was a whole scale uh, with which they assessed the bizarreness and uh, how complex the dream was one thing to note here is that when they were woken up in the mornings right when rem sleep usually occurs their dream recall was much much better hmm. even though they weren't in the rem sleep yeah i mean i think uh, the morning dreams have been so much in the discourse about dreams there was even this time when i was younger where people believed that morning dreams come true and or morning dreams like one shouldn't recall morning dreams there were a lot of weird rumors about morning dreams because they were the most recalled and most um easier like they were the easiest to discuss with other people true but the but the point here is not that uh, they had morning dreams uh, uh, but that you know uh, even though they were not in their rem stage because they were uh, awakened every 20 minutes so they never really got the time to go into rem stage mm. but when usually rem sleep occurs their dream recall was better which indicates that there are some underlying rem processes that are constantly occurring throughout your sleep yeah so this is kind of like an evidence for this uh, uh, model that nielsen proposed he called it the covert rem model where uh, covertly like under the layers rem is always active the, the not rem but the processes physiological processes related to rem and that's why dream occurs throughout the uh, periods of sleep which is very interesting. interesting yeah it is interesting the but uh, you know the recent studies nowadays have disputed this and have uh, claimed that the way that a, sleep, a dream has been described in the first stage in the in these studies were is actually more like an altered state of consciousness like hypnosis so they track the uh, cerebral blood flow changes through bold fmri so bold is basically it measures the blood oxygen level in your brain and uh, finds the uh, changes in the blood flow and they compared uh, that data to their blood flow changes of hypnosis and they found a lot of similarities they and they claimed that it's not really a dream so it doesn't count which brings me to an interesting question like what really is a dream what 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 characterizes as a dream and what doesn't yeah because that is true because what the uh, scientists are saying during the experiments our brain is brain activity technically and what the what we can listen from the dreamers only the parts that one can recall so it will always have that huge spectrum of uncertainty as to defining a dream but that's true uh what i have experienced with dreams in particular is that it actually reflects my mental health and physical health quite well like mm-hmm. um like especially during this quarantine i was in, initially i was going through a lot of stress and the like like a lot of recurring nightmares that i was having so uh at like after few months like i think around july i decided to like finally take care of one of the stresses that i had and it was like a very difficult confrontation i needed to have with the person but then after it was done after a lot of uh conversations i realized i was feeling mentally and physically better and the funniest part was how i knew i was getting better was i had a dream and it was mm-hmm. very very similar to the nightmares that i used to have except in the dream i reacted very rationally and sanely to the same narrative that was happening and then i turned my narrative into something that was calmer 
and uh, at this point i was not lucid dreaming it was just a dream but i did realize when i woke up i realized it was the same setting of my previous nightmares and they were recurring mm-hmm. but this time i woke up feeling very relieved i was like oh it's the same thing but it didn't scare me and it it didn't it wasn't a nightmare so yeah it it there is a lot of evidence as to like if you pay attention not to the elements of your dream but basically what your dream is making you feel uh mm-hmm. that is also a very important pattern in like realizing what are your mental disorders what is your mental state not every nightmare obviously uh, you know points towards a mental illness but it is always good to be aware about your dreams and what you feeling about your dreams Yeah on on that same note uh, there was a study by UC Berkeley that found that uh, uh, you know dreaming helps in processing painful emotions and suppresses uh, stress causing neurochemicals like cortisol and noradrenaline and this this reduction in these neurochemicals was only predominant in like intense dreaming so it's a way of uh, for for an individual to realign their emotion emotions about a certain event Yeah that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. And uh, a lot of psychologists and therapists do say that like you know you should have a dream journal but uh, like everyone's commitment is different to it. But it's always yeah. fun to discuss discuss the uh, interpretations of dreams I guess and it's not just like the elements of it. Yeah. So uh, coming to the nightmares part right so nightmares are actually referred to as uh, rem parasomnia so basically a disorder in the rem and uh, they found that it's very predominant in uh, individuals with PTSD and mm-hmm. it, r- nightmares actually worsen PTSD symptoms so yeah. uh, you know a dream may not always be the uh, way to deal with and process painful emotions sometimes it can actually worsen it especially when it's a nightmare so although this might just apply to individuals with ptsd and not to the general population but it's still something to consider yeah that is true and the funny thing is lucid dreaming is a very uh, helpful trick to sort of control your nightmares and a lot of people with ptsd when they go through cognitive behavioral therapy they go through something mm-hmm. called as the IRT which is the imagery rehearsal therapy that mm-hmm. allows them to reimagine a nightmare into a more pleasant storyline and eventually they uh, start having less and less nightmares because a person with PTSD has i think 49 times they're more likely to have a nightmare than a person without PTSD yeah it's a i guess it's like cognitive reappraisal of uh, Uh, the event and the dreams subsequently related to that event and therefore modifying the story yeah yeah i think now that we're like talking about lucid dreaming a lot uh, the basic definition i i found this uh, definition by julian mutz and uh, amir humayun jawadi really beautiful mm-hmm. uh, so they said that lucid dreaming is a hybrid state of consciousness with features of both waking and dreaming which is basically when you're dreaming you're aware that mm-hmm. you're dreaming and uh, it's like as someone if you're lucid dreaming for the first time and you have no idea about what's happening it's a very crazy state to be in and because i have an active dreamer and i've been dreaming since i was a kid the first time when i had a lucid dream i was panicking that i couldn't wake up 
because I realized I was dreaming and then I just couldn't wake up in the dream. Oh. And yeah, and then eventually after that I lucid dreamt once or twice and I think the second time I was like, okay, if I can't wake up, let me just take advantage of the situation. And I was like, I think I flew around in the lucid dream or something. I have a vague memory of that. That must have been fun. That was really fun. And then uh, at that time, I didn't have internet at home. So when I went to my grandparents' place, that's where internet was. And then I Googled it. And that's when I learned that it's called lucid dreaming. And then that's an actual thing. And I wasn't going insane. And Mm. I also learned how to control it better because it takes practice and more self-awareness. And then you can actually control lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. And one of the tricks that really worked for me, uh, it's called reality testing. And there are multiple ways you can do reality testing. What worked for me was uh, visualizing time. Uh, okay. So in your waking state, you have to keep looking at a clock every hour or every two hours. And you have to look at it twice. So when you're in a waking state, obviously the second time you look, the time is going to be same. And when you consciously practice this, then in your dream, you'll also have a, a awareness to check the time in your dream. And at that time, when you look at it the second time, the time will be different because there is no structured concept of time in your dreams. If like, you know, I don't know if you had dreams where there's no, there's like night and day happening within seconds. Yeah. The, yeah. It's Situational like, changes. Yeah. You're in different locations. So there is no structured concept of place and time. So at that time, you suddenly realize the absurdity in the clocks and then you slowly start understanding, okay, you're lucid dreaming and then, but also it takes a lot of control to dip, uh, control the other characters and environment and the storyline, it all depends, but it's honestly fun to lucid dream. Mm-hmm. And so, way, yeah. Yeah, no, I was just saying that uh, the definition that you mentioned is actually it makes a lot of sense because like uh, brain imaging and stuff has uh, actually pr- uh, lent a lot of credence to lucid dreaming being a real thing because they found that uh, a, people who lucid dreamt uh, uh, showed an increased activity in the prefrontal cortex like a lot more which indicates conscious rational thought occurring simultaneously during dreams exactly i mean that's why i think reality testing works because what reality testing does like other things you can do is keep looking at your hands so Mm -hmm. uh, in the dream when you look at your hands your hands look very uh deformed i guess and also if you look at if you constantly look at reflection of yours in the waking state in your dreams you'll realize your reflection also looks very deformed because your body uh, when you're dreaming doesn't have a structured concept of yourself either so oh my god that that sounds scary yeah and yeah that's when you can realize so what happens when you're reality testing is you're increasing your metacognition which is a big Mm. aspect of the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal right. cortex works very similarly in the waking and the dreaming stage. So mm-hmm. when you are being more self-conscious and your metacognition is high when you're awake, then you tend to be more self-aware even while dreaming. So okay. that's why the rational thinking increases and then you can easily identify. It's easier to identify a lucid dream. Yeah, exactly. Which is why it's a learnable skill. So if you keep doing these reality checks and, uh, you know, keep look looking at time and looking at your hands and stuff i guess you kind of form a habit of doing that and that carries over into your dreams 
yeah i mean there are benefits uh, because like how we discussed previously uh, it helps reducing ptsd anxiety depression etc but right. also there are like if it is medically sort of uh, asked to learn how to lucid dream there are few methods like it's called wake back to bed method where you have to sleep for 5 hours and then wake up by an alarm and stay for 30 minutes doing something that keeps your brain alert like you know sudoku or read a book and then go back to sleep immediately after 30 minutes mm-hmm. so every time your brain is aware and active even in while sleeping so that keeps your metacognition on as well right or there is the wake initiated lucid dream you know when you're about to fall asleep you have that uh, hypno uh hypnogenic uh, hallucination knee jerk knee jerk sort of thing no like when you're going to sleep you have this slight hallucination of like uh you that one when you're drifting off to sleep basically that one phase where you're drifting off to sleep you have slight uh, amount of images or like there's a slight storyline forming oh you mean uh, hypnagogic hallucination yes sorry yeah the hypnagogic hallucination mm-hmm. uh so at that point you uh when you practice your hypnagogic hallucinations to be more uh, intricate like you pay more attention to the details there then as your body goes off to sleep uh, you immediately start lucid dreaming right so that is called the wild method wake initiated lucid dream method and there are multiple other methods but again because these really affect your sleep cycle uh, when you do it um without having proper like it's all everything should be done in moderation hmm. so when there are like more chances of having depressive symptoms and derealization like everything starts feeling unreal around you oh i uh, see yeah so like all good things lucid dreaming also has its drawbacks base and main issue being it interrupts a good sleep cycle you can like sink into insomnia because your brain is always active it's not getting time to rest mhm but yeah it's this is i hope some of the listeners try lucid dreaming if this helps them try to have more reality testing methods to lucid dream instead of uh, cycles that break your sleep pattern like the cycles that break your sleep pattern is better if your therapist or a medical professional has told you to do so but if it's reality testing which i do quite often uh, mm. i i tend to lucid dream i think once or twice a month and Yeah I actually read that 55% of uh, people have experienced lucid dreams which is insane considering that you know how uh, rare the reports and studies on lucid dreaming actually are I think like a lot of a lot more uh, research ha- should be going into lucid dreaming and what are the biological and physiological processes involved so that we have a better understanding of what exactly goes on Actually I I mean there was a study uh done that lucid dreaming may also help uh, people with physical disabilities because then they can mm-hmm. uh, stimulate their brain for more motor cognition when they're not actually moving their body so it sort oh okay yeah so it sort of becomes like uh, physiotherapy but while sleeping and that was very interesting to read that study wow i think now we are entering the realm of uh, inception exactly <laughs> yeah well we have been talking for nearly 35 minutes now yeah and i think we've had a pretty in-depth discussion about dreams yeah i think i'm also sleepy yeah. because of all the dreams i think 
I think I'm going to try lucid dreaming after this. Oh yeah. Actually the fun fact is while I was do, uh, researching more for this podcast I actually lucid dreamt because I read so much about lucid dreaming at once. So hope it works oh. for you too. I hope so. I certainly hope so. Yeah. With that I think we should wrap up today's episode what do you say? Yeah, this was really fun. Mhm. So I'm Akanksh signing off for now. And I'm Mansi. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.